All right, let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles to Hosea chapter 4. Hosea chapter 4. All right, so this is where I am in my reading in the book of Hosea, just going through it actually quite slowly. Um, and I've reread the first four chapters over and over and over, so I haven't gotten past that exactly why. I'm not ex uh, really sure, other than it just seems like. Like I said before, I, I think, you know, since we've come into this Torah movement, and you get thinking, you know, wow, it's all for me. So then, for, at least for me, it's like, oh, all right, maybe I better take a second look, a deeper look, you know. I don't know if deeper is the right word, but at least give it a chance to have some uh, depth and breadth to it that it maybe hasn't had for me in, in the past. So I want to read uh, the whole chapter, and then... We're going to look at this chapter under the heading of The Land Mourns. So that's the title of this, The Land Mourns. All right, so chapter 4, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, ye children of Israel. For the Lord hath a controversy with the inhabitants of the land, because there is no truth, nor mercy, nor knowledge of God in the land. By swearing and lying and killing and stealing and committing adultery, before I forget, that's like breaking five of the Ten Commandments. They break out, meaning there's no restraint any longer. They break out and blood touches blood. A lot of bloodshed in, in the midst of all this. Therefore shall the land mourn, and everyone that dwelleth therein shall languish, with the beasts of the field and with the fowls of heaven. Yea, the fishes of the sea also shall be taken away. Yet let no man strive nor reprove another. For thy people are as they that strive with the priest. Therefore shalt thou fall in the day, and the prophet also shall fall with thee in the night, and I will destroy thy mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee, that thou shalt be no priest to me. Seeing thou hast forgotten the Torah of thy God, I will also forget thy children. As they were increased, so they sinned against me. Therefore will I change their glory into shame. They eat up the sin of my people, and they set their heart on their iniquity. And there shall be, like people, like priests. And I will punish them for their ways and reward them their doings. For they shall eat and not have enough. They shall commit whoredom and shall not increase, because they have left off to take heed to the Lord. Whoredom and wine and new wine take away the heart. My people ask counsel at their stocks, and their staff declareth unto them. For the spirit of whoredoms hath caused them to err, and they have gone a-whoring from under their God. They sacrifice on the tops of the mountains and burn incense upon the hills under oaks and poplars and elms, because the shadow thereof is good. 
Therefore your daughters shall commit whoredom, and your spouses shall commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they commit whoredom, nor your spouses when they commit adultery. For themselves, that's talking about the men, for themselves are separated with whores, and they sacrifice with harlots. Therefore the people that doth not understand shall fall. Though thou, Israel, play the harlot, yet let not Judah offend. And come not ye unto Gilgal, neither go ye up to Beth-Avon, nor swear, the Lord liveth. For Israel slideth back as a backsliding heifer. Now the Lord will feed them as a lamb in a large place, meaning not protected. Ephraim is joined to idols. Let them alone. Their drink is sour. They have committed whoredom continually. Her rulers with shame do love. Give ye. The wind hath bound her up in her wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. So that's quite an interesting chapter. And, you know, it was one of the times I was going through it that verse 3 just kind of caught me. Therefore shall the land mourn. And that became my jump-off point of, well, I wonder how this relates to the rest of the chapter. And for me, sort of the whole chapter revolves around this. So, as I said on my blog, you know, Hosea starts us into what we normally consider the minor prophets. You know, basically because most of them are smaller uh, in, in uh, length, but not always the case. But I think it's unfortunate, you know, they're called the major prophets and then the minor prophets because, you know, there's nothing minor about the minor prophets. I mean, what they have to say is some incredibly potent and powerful stuff. So, I, and I, I love from Hosea to Malachi because it seems in many ways to be so apocalyptic, so end time-ish. You know, even though it's talking to God's people then and some of the ramifications for them, it makes it clear that this is like end time. It takes us, it, it kind of scoots us to the end. All right, so I want to make a couple introductory statements and then we'll get into this. And the way I've broken this down once we get past the introduction is into four points. There's the premise, the problem, the perpetrators, and the penalty. All right, so that's kind of it, all P's. The premise, the problem, the perpetrators, and the penalty. And then I'll try to draw it all together in a conclusion. But a couple introductory statements. Um, because I'm focusing on this idea of the land mourns and everything revolving around it, I want to say right off, in relation to the times in which we live, environmental concerns are BS. I don't know how else, way, how, how, how other, how else to say it, because if you put environmental concerns into perspective through what is being said in this chapter, then at least for me, and I knew this anyway, and I know some people will take umbrage with that, but that's okay. And as far as how we're having it portrayed to us, environmental concerns are BS. Now, does that mean, oh, we shouldn't, you know, yes, we should maybe recycle and, be, you know, concern... Honestly, I'm not concerned. I'm just going to tell you, I'm not concerned about any of that stuff. You know, the generation that has grown up post my generation has just been sold a bill of goods. And what I mean by that is this. Man cannot destroy what God has created. That is, the world and its atmosphere. It's just not going to happen. 
Man's not going to be able to destroy this. Can he do harm to the planet? Yes. Should we be good stewards of the planet? Yes. But to be wringing our hands over all this stuff like society wants us to, I think it's just out of perspective because what has happened now since we've left God behind, and the prophets talk about this, since we've left God behind, and God, there is no God, basically, and God, since there is no God, this has all evolved, then it falls to us to take care of it. And it's just a flip of the mindset that just bothers me. I'd rather go to this other extreme of mine, environmental concerns are BS. Why? Well, if there are any environmental concerns, two things. One, I'd like to suggest fixing man. Because man is the problem. Man and man's sin. That's the problem. And, and I know in the times in which we live, we can't make that connection. But if you read the scriptures, you find out, and especially in this chapter, when mankind is messed up, then the ramifications just touch everything else. And so we're trying to just fix the, the symptom rather than the problem. And the problem is man. If man were to live according to the Torah, get out of his sin, and not be calling the judgment of God upon our environments because of our sin, as we will see in this chapter, things would just straighten out. You know, there is not going to be any environmental concerns when Yeshua comes back and we live in a thousand-year reign. There's not going to be any of this nonsense. Well, why? Well, the second thing, if there are environmental problems, let's look first and foremost to God and what he might be, might be trying to tell us. Whenever we see environmental concerns in the scripture, it's because of man's sin and then the degeneracy that falls out from that. And so there are environmental circumstances that, that arise but that's not a call to man outside of God to fix it. It should be a call of man to look to God to see, what are you trying to tell us? Right? Am I not right? Yeah. Now, I know this isn't politically correct, but I don't care anymore. And God's people are getting sucked into this garbage. No. God's people need to be saying, listen, yes, be concerned and all that stuff. But the problem is, Man has walked away from God and his Torah, and these are the results. Now, let's see here. All right. If it is God doing these environmental concerns, man isn't going to be able to fix it. If it is God that's bringing about or allowing by natural ramifications because of man's sin. If it is God, man is not going to be able to fix it anyway. God uses the environmental changes to draw people to him, not to themselves. So the fact that we have to save the planet is bizarre. We know how it's all going to end anyway. <laughs> you know, We have the book of Revelation. It's going to be here. And it seems to be working just fine until God says enough is enough. And he enters in and just annihilates it all. All right, second, so that's the first how-do-do for you. Second, introductory statement. As goes Israel, so goes the world. As goes Israel, so goes the world. Israel's condition, spiritually and morally, has worldwide ripple effects. 
And that bears out again just what I said when you get to the, to the thousand year reign and Israel is Israel, which means all that are, you know, all saved people. Um, the condition upon Mother Earth is going to be what it should be because God's people are what they should be. And, and you find in Scripture, as goes Israel, so goes the world. And Anyway, I don't know how to elaborate on that, but just do with that what you want. But I, I believe that's true. Israel is the apple of God's eye. When Israel is doing what it should be, then the ripple effects are what they should be. When Israel is not what it should be, then you have all these other cataclysmic ramifications. So I just had to throw all that in. That's just me. Take it for what it's worth. But it deals with this idea of the land mourns. And I hope to bear out some of this as we get into this. All right, so the premise, verse 1, the first part. Hear the word of the Lord, ye children of Israel, for the Lord hath a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. The premise is, the Lord has a controversy with the land. And right now, this is dealing with the northern kingdom. When you get up into chapter 12, verse 2, you find out the Lord is, has also a controversy with Judah. But right now, we're dealing with the northern kingdom. So what's the premise? God has a controversy. And the word controversy carries legal and courtroom overtones to it. And without getting into all that, if you can at least just picture that, God is bringing a charge against his people in the courtroom of his justice. And so, basically, this premise means this. It means God is mad. God's mad. And he's going to prove it. He's taking them to task and is going to pronounce his verdict upon them. He's mad because they have forsaken the Torah. They've gone away from him. They're sacrificing under trees, and, and they're, there's whoredom being committed and paganism and pagan idolatry. And, and God, you know, since we've relegated God to no existence in our country, we don't think about this, but God does care, especially when his people are a disaster. And he gets mad, and he has a controversy, and he, he pleads with his people, say, here's what I present against you. How do you answer? You either answer by repentance, or God says, oh, you're not going to repent? Then here's judgment. And that's what these people are facing. God's trying to say, listen, you're facing pretty much horrible stuff. I'm going to lay the case before you. Will you repent or not? And they don't. So here's the overall arching thought. You don't want to get God mad at you. You just don't want to get God mad at you. Now, even though this is in a big scope here, and we're talking the northern kingdom right now, we have to bring this down to us. In the, our actions, the way we live our life, we have to realize that God is observing, God is taking note, he's building a case, he's going to, Tell us, hey, don't, don't, don't along the way, but we keep choosing one way or the other. If we choose our own way, God is going to have a controversy with us. And God never loses. He just doesn't lose. You know, my kids knew, at least when they were young, Dad always wins. Dad always wins. You know what? God always wins. And the premise is, the premise is that God decides when it's time to act 
when his people and his creation have gone beyond the boundaries that he has set. So what's the problem? That's the second part of verse 1. Because there is no truth, nor mercy, nor knowledge of God in the land. The problem here is expressed in negatives. No truth, nor mercy, nor knowledge of God. So the first one is truth. He says, there is no truth. So truth is the foundation. I mean, if you don't know what truth is, then you cannot build spiritually and morally the proper foundation to a life, to a family, to a country, to a world, if it's not based upon what is truth. You know, man has set up his own truth. It's, it's been that way from the beginning when Satan said, are you sure that's what God said? And so they opted to disregard the truth of God, don't eat, to, hey, eat, go ahead if you want. And so the foundation crumbled because it wasn't built upon the foundation that God had said, don't touch it. Don't eat. Have nothing to do with it. So, you know, so what is truth? And where is truth? You know, honestly, if you think about it, Everybody now has their own definition of what is truth because truth is whatever is personally relevant to that individual. There's no great body of truth which all individuals need to come underneath anymore. When we got rid of God, when we got rid of his word, when we got rid of prayer in school and all that stuff and brought in Roe v. Wade, things were just a total disaster and the foundation of truth was just done away with. So what is truth? Where is truth? Is it what is personally relevant, or is there a greater substance to truth that all mankind is to come under? And, and that was generally the case when I was growing up in our country, though it wasn't a Christian country and not everybody was quote-unquote Christian. Th this book here was still looked to as the foundation upon which society is to live. So what is truth anymore? Where is truth? Turn up to John, hold your finger here, turn up to John 18. Uh, we're not going to look at anything you don't know, but I want to use this back as a backdrop to what I want to talk about, the importance of truth. So, you know, Pilate asks a question in John 18. And we'll just pull into the narrative. John 18, and we'll look at verse 37 and 38. Pilate therefore said unto him, Yeshua, Art thou a king then? Yeshua answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Have you ever thought about it like that? He came to walk on this earth to be a demonstration of what truth was to set the foundation for society and his people to live. Everyone that is of the truth hears my voice. Why the ramifications that preaches? Nobody's looking to Yeshua, looking to Jesus. Then they don't know what truth is. So Pilate saith unto him, what is truth? Now here's the thing. Truth was literally staring him in the face and he couldn't see it. When truth falls, when there is no truth, when truth is discarded, you can't even then at that point recognize truth when it stares you in the face because truth is the embodiment of Yeshua 
which is the Word. Does this make sense? Can we see this? All right. So that's the first problem. No truth. Second, no truth. That's the foundation. You have Pilate's question, what is truth? Well, then let's look at some of Yeshua's declarations about truth. John, uh, turn up uh, back to John 14. And you know these verses. John 14. So Pilate says, what, what is truth? Truth is staring him in the face. He doesn't see it, can't recognize it as truth, won't, won't recognize it as truth. So Yeshua says, verse 6 of 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father by me. There's not multiple truths. There's not individual personal truths. There is one truth. And that one truth is bound up in Yeshua, which is bound up in the Word. John 17, 17. Yeshua is speaking again. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. So we have a problem back in Hosea. And the, whole, and the problem is, <laughs> there's no truth. They're rejecting the Torah. And when that happens, the foundations crumble. Now, built upon the foundation of truth is a second one, mercy. Nor mercy. Now, the word for mercy here is used six times in Hosea. And Ryrie, not that I agree with everything Ryrie says, but Ryrie, I, I read this I, probably 15, 20 years ago, this great definition in the study Bible about what this word hesed is for mercy. He says it means loyalty, steadfast or faithful love, and stresses the idea of a belonging together of those involved in the love relationship. I would say it again. It means loyalty, steadfast or faithful love and stresses the idea of a belonging together of those involved in the love relationship. This idea of mercy has, has hesed, has, has an idea, at least between God and his people, of a covenantal relationship, like the marriage relationship. So when there's no foundation, God's truth, then you cannot properly build upon it a relational aspect that is going to function as it should horizontally or vertically. When there's no truth, then vertically, God's relation to man and man's relation to God, that communal aspect it cannot function, it won't function right. On, on the horizontal level, if a husband and a wife are, are messed up in that covenantal relationship, that hesed that is supposed to bind them together, then that relationship falls apart. If there's no foundational truth, honestly, you cannot build. You know, Christianity talks about all you have to do is love. Well, that is so skewed. <laughs> I wanted to use a different word. That is so skewed, it isn't funny. Define love. You cannot define love apart from the foundational truth of Torah. So no mercy. Hesed. No hesed equals a breakdown in communal relationships. And that's why God has a controversy with his people. That's why God has a controversy with his creation. Because truth has become relative. Um, there's no, what's the word I'm looking for? Standard. There's, there's no, it all becomes relative. There's, there's no standard. There's no absolutes anymore. It's all relative. And when that happens, 
there's a breakdown in relationship. Now, the third one, no knowledge of God. So you have no foundation. You cannot build communal relationships, and that leads to a society that just says no God. So no truth, no mercy, no God. And that's how it works. <clears throat> if there's no foundation, communal relationships are messed up. Which means, you know, it talks about how they break restraints and blood touches blood. That's why abortion. That's why we have, you know, millions, hundreds of thousands around the world, millions, whatever it is. Um, because if there's no foundation, there's no proper communal relations, then who cares about the unborn? Who cares about that person who I want to kill because that person is interfering with my life? It's just an all a breakdown. This no knowledge of God has the idea of not acknowledging God. At least that's the part of it. And that has behind it this. To acknowledge God properly, he must be known intimately. Because that word here for knowledge or know is that word for intimacy between a husband and wife. And that's why it's involved here in this conversation in relation to God having a controversy because there's been a breakdown in the relationship of intimacy, that it was supposed to be an intimate relationship, but there's, there's been a breakdown in that, and they're going after other gods, after walking their life according to the dictates of their own flesh rather than the dictates of his word, and, and it's just a total breakdown. And the reason I think this is so relevant is this is exactly what has happened to our country. That's why there's no turning back. God has a controversy with our country, but God is also right now in a controversy with the whole world. And that's why Christians who say Jesus could come at any minute, uh, and big-name Christians are saying, look at all the signs, prophecies being fulfilled. Well, why? Because so much prophecy has been fulfilled, even though somehow they still maintain Jesus could come at any minute, even since the Apostle Paul. But anyway, I'm getting sidetracked. You know, here, it, it's so bad and we're seeing these prophetic signs being happened that that uh, being fulfilled that mankind realizes at least Christians that we're we're approaching the end. What's left if you have no foundation and no proper biblical relationships in a society that brings you to know God? And when there's no God, you're in big trouble. So that's the problem. Now, who are the perpetrators? And I don't, I'm not going to really delve into this. That's verses 4 through 9. But there's really three. Who are the perpetrators of the problem? The priests, the prophets, the people. And I think by and large, verses 4 through 9, though it's maybe somewhat up for debate who's talking about, but it seems to be indicating that the priests are the main problem. Like, for example, thou, and it says thou in verse 6. I think it's referring possibly to the true priests scattered up and down Israel who in, in Barnes says this, it refers possibly to the true priests scattered up and down Israel, who in an irregular way offered sacrifices for them and connived at their sins, that is secretly allowed. So at, at the tip of the spear, I think, is the priesthood. Because we're going to see when I get down to it, uh, the priests basically were basically saying, okay, that's what you want to do, fine. We'll figure out some way to make it very religious. We'll do it unto Yeshua, and everything will be okay. 
So verses 6 through 8 continue the theme of bad priests. And it's gotten so bad that the situation is described in verse 9 like people, like priests. In other words, they feed into each other's sins. And, and then that just led me into this thought. I hope, is this all being cohesive? Because every time I get like this, I yeah. feel like it's all disjointed. All right. Verses 6 to 8 continue on this theme of bad priests, though it's not letting off prophets in verse 5 and people verse 6. It's gotten so bad, the situation as described as like people, like priests. That means they feed into each other's sins. So, I had this thought this morning. I mean, I've had it before, but as far as connecting it to the message. And that's this. If you want to know the true condition of the priest or the preacher, look at the condition of the people. The people are a reflection of the preachers. I'm telling you this, what I just said is huge. But it's true. And that's why it says, like people, like priest. Like father, like son. And because it's the priests and the prophets that are the problem, I am maintaining. And, and, and if they are the problem, and they are, and you look at the condition of the people, well, the people are in the condition they are in because of the priests and the prophets that are conniving, looking for ways for the people to live out their sinful lives because their lives are sinful. And I'm telling you, the preachers behind the pulpits, I've been there, I probably still am there. We are the problem. And, and if you want to check a barometer of, I'm talking when I say preacher, true preacher, preachers, look at the conditions of the congregations. If you, and I'm talking Christianity. But if you want to look at what the condition of the Messianic leaders are, look at the condition of the Messianic people. Huh? It's a cuss show. Yes. Do you understand what I'm saying? Right? Right? And so it's all smoke and mirrors. We're going through this big facade, Messianic and Christianity. But yet, if you, you, you measure any... Look, I am measured, mom is measured, Judy is measured as parents by our kids. And the lives they live. It's just how it is. That's understood, Right? When I grew up, my mom trying to curtail me from doing what I was doing, especially as a younger kid. She said, Tip, you are a reflection of us, your parents. Don't behave like that because when you behave like that, you're a reflection on us. Well, I never quite understood that. It's like, well, who cares? But that's how things are judged. All right. Then why can't we apply the same principle to us preachers? Look at the children we're spawning. Right? Well, that's a reflection on dad in the pulpit, the guy in the pulpit. And that's why what Hosea is saying is so penetrating. He's just ripping it all apart and tearing back the crappy facade and saying, listen, you people, yeah, you're bad, but you know why? Look at them. Until we get to that place, and we won't. In Christianity and the Messianic movement, because it's just too, too far gone. 
if we were able to get to the point where that's, that's why I think it's Joel talks to the priests and the preachers saying, you guys get down. You need to repent. Cry and howl out to God. Howl, cry, wail to God. Get right with God. You're the hope and you're the blame. So that's the perpetrators. All right, so what's the penalty? Did I have I done all? I don't even know where I am anymore. So we've done the premise. We've done the problem. Okay, we've done the perpetrator. All right, now. Uh, but uh, the penalty. All right, this is kind of building to everything to this. So what's the penalty? And we see this before us. Now, as I've laid it out, now apply it to the environmental crisis in which we live in. It's just BS. And I hope to show that. So verse 3. The land mourns, and everyone languishes. This is so big. And oh, So let's read it. Therefore shall land mourn, and everyone that dwelleth therein shall languish. With the beasts of the field, and with the fowls of heaven. Yea, the fishes of the sea are also taken away. What an environmental crisis! Why is there an environmental crisis? Disobey God. Yeah, but, this, we have to, but today, everybody will be saying, oh, it's the environment. It's, it's what, you know, everything. And yes, that plays into it, but, but the environmental crisis is God's way of saying, hey, hello. We don't do that part of it. Albert Barnes says, um, oh, I, it's on my phone. Where's my phone? So the, the words here for mourn and languish, they, they basically mean to bend out, bend down or be bent over. Hope I can pull this up. Okay, so Albert Barnes has, a, I thought, a great note on this verse. And let me just read it to you. He says, Therefore shall the land mourn, dumb, inanimate nature seems to rejoice and be in unison with our with our sense of joy, when bedewed and fresh through rain and radiant, radiant with life. In other words, it's, there's a, you know, when God's people are what they should be, then everything else kind of functions as they should. All right, then he says, and again, talking about the land, to mourn when smitten with drought or blight or diseased or devoured by the creatures which God employs to lay it waste for man's sins. Isn't that good? That's what, that's what I'm trying to say. The land mourns when smitten with drought or blight or disease or devoured by the creatures which God, which God employs to lay it waste for man's sins. Dumb nature is, as it were, in sympathy with man, cursed in Adam, smitten amid man's offenses, its outward show responding to man's inward heart, wasted, parched, desolate, when man himself was marred and wasted by his sin. That's great stuff. Isn't that great stuff? We don't hear preaching like that anymore. Why? The stupid preachers behind the pulpit, me included, we're so caught up to the tar baby of our sin to preach as we should. It's like... Well, we have to go to the woodshed just like Joel wanted the priest to go to the woodshed. We have to, preachers, take ourselves to the woodshed. 
because as it is with Israel, the world, as with the preachers, so the climate, the animals, the poor fish. I mean, and part of my understanding is, is allowed because I think, look at what you've talked about, there's vibrations, there's all this stuff. You know, if, if rocks absorb sounds and, and, and they can find the words that were actually said in, in rocks, right? Am I right? You know, the rocks will cry out. It's just not a metaphor. Well, there, there's, there's, there's a, re, an action, a reaction to our actions. But what does man say? Let's fix it. Let's, let's pass laws. Let's legislate. You know, let's blah, blah, blah. Why? Because man has become God. There's no God that created anything, so there's no God to fix it. And since it all evolved and it came out of it, and we're supposed to be good stewards, and we are now God, and we will fix this planet. It's, it's, it's a smacking of God in the face. This is a sin of the high hand. It's bad. So the penalty versus, you know, so they languish and mourn. It, you know, it's kind of like that flower that's finally wilting. You know, the whole land, everything's just weak. It's undernourished. Mm. It can't stand because the nutrients is supposed to be drawing, they're not. Now, verses 15 through 19, it tells us that the people will be dispersed. And, and that's the problem. Though thou, Israel, play the harlot, it's, it's saying this is a warning to Judah, yet let not Judah offend, though, though their time will come because they will sin later. And come not to, uh, unto Gilgal, neither go ye to Beth-Avon, nor swear the Lord liveth. For Israel slideth back as a backsliding heifer. Now the Lord will feed them as a lamb, in a large place, they are not going to be protected. God's going to say, you want to do it on your own? Go for it. Go for it. You don't have me protecting you. All right. Ephraim is joined to idols. Let them alone. Love it. Their drink is sour. They have committed whoredom continually. Her rulers with shame do love. Give ye. Now here's the dispersion. And it talks like it's already happened. It's so, it's so real, but yet we're talking a long time off before the final dispersion is going to happen, but it talks like it's real, the, uh, 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 really present. The wind hath bound her up in her wings. That's the dispersion. It's going to be just like the wind comes along like in Arizona, a boob, and picks up everything from where it was and drops it where nobody else wants it to be, right? Well, that's this. The wind hath bound her up in her wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. You know, Barnes goes on to say, with the beasts of the field, God included the fowl and the cattle and every beast of the field in his covenant with man. This, this is so good. So here, in this sentence of woe, he includes them in the inhabitants of the land and orders that since man would not serve God, the creatures made to serve him should be withdrawn from him. I like this. General iniquity is punished by general desolation. This is so good. Yay, the fishes of the sea. Um, let me skip over some of it. Oh, uh, let me just read because I can't. 
So inland seas or lakes are called by this same name as the Sea of Tiberias and the Dead Sea. Yet here the prophet probably alludes to the history of man's creation when God gave him dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the heaven and over every living thing. And, and Genesis 1.28 in just the inverse order. So there's a reversing of the order here. There's an inverse order in which he here declares, God here declares, that they shall be taken away in reverse order of, of how they originally were. There God gives dominion over all, from the lowest to the highest. Here God denounces that he will take all away, down to those which are least affected by any changes. Yet from time to time God has in chastisement directed that the shoals of fishes should not come to their usual haunts. This is well known in the history of seacoasts. I don't know. I'm so encouraged when I read notes like this from guys, I think he's 1800s, because I want any who may be listening to realize how far we have come and we cannot even recognize it. All right, so that's the penalty. Now, let's conclude with this. Turn up to Romans, 18, uh, Romans 8. Kind of make a, a parallel here. Because I want you to see everything that I just said is even talked about by the Apostle Paul. Why? Because he's familiar with the Torah. He didn't get brand new revelation. Is now given brand new truth. Well, that's probably not completely accurate. But the truth he gives is based on his knowledge that he had of the Torah. All right, so let's read Romans 8, 18. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. It's like creation saying, you stupid idiots, get your act together so we can have it like it's supposed to be. 19, for the earnest expectation of the creature waited for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him, God, who has subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. That's your environmental crisis. And why? Because God's people aren't what they should be. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, yes, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. For we're saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. That's your environmental crisis. That's why the land is mourning. Because not just the loss of the world or a disaster. I mean, to the degree that's like expected, that's built in. Kind of what's not built in is God's people being in disarray. And when that happens, it's a domino effect. And, and really, that's why, what, entropy can't be overcome. 
It's just, you know. I mean, if it were to go out, but God's going to intervene. But entropy, things are going to get worse and worse and worse. So, now that's my message on the land mourns from Hosea. And I, I, hope, I hope it was practical enough that, one, it will convict us of our own sins, realize we can't keep blaming, the, pointing the finger at everybody else. The buck stops with us. We individually impact the collective. You know, but as long as I think, well, what does my life, little life matter? Then nothing's going to change because if I'm doing that and that guy's doing it and that guy's doing it and that guy's doing it and we all see ourselves as stupid individuals not in the collective, the body of Messiah, then it just falls apart. But it's not until we have people like Hosea, Ezekiel, Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, individuals that will say enough is enough. Woe is me, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips. He, he saw and acknowledged personally. What if Isaiah had never been Isaiah? What if Hosea had never been Hosea? What if I'm never what I'm supposed to be? The ripple effect is huge. And we have to see it that way. Our individual existences matter until we get our acts together or at least step on the treadmill of trying to get it better. We're, we're as much to blame as everybody else. And you know why? Because we want our own lives. We don't want to submit. As much as we're wrapping ourselves up with the right garb, we don't want to submit, really, to the demands, really the blessings that the Torah places on us. So that's it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Make it live. Make it real. Make it alive. Fix whatever faults and flaws I've brought into it. And for those that may end up hearing this, God speak, please. In Yeshua's name. Amen.